I've definitely over optimized for never leaving this room to work. <laughs> I mean, you probably won't. So. No, I will. I have a sofa and an armchair in this office. They don't get a lot of use. Yeah, same. I never sit on this couch, mostly because it's covered in pets, like 24 hours. But... Wow. Yeah. Uh, no, so that that couch reclines, and uh, and you lay in that, and it's super comfy. I use that couch. I use it I, a lot. I actually. need a couch in my office. My office is too small. All right. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio, your destination for all things Beam, brought to you by your fabulous panel of hosts. I am Sophie De Benedetto, and I am also joined today by Alex Kutmos. Hey, Alex. Howdy, howdy. Welcome. We have Stephen Nunez. Hello. Hey, Stephen. We've got Lars Vickman. Hello. Hi, Lars. And we have Bruce Tate as well. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey, Bruce. And we also are joined by Josh Adams. Hey there. Hey, Josh. So before I introduced our main host for the day, I would love to open up the floor for a word from our sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, what's new with Graxio? Today, I, I finished recording the first video, and we actually talk about why Julia is such a great language for machine learning with the automatic differentiation. It should be a lot of fun. Very cool. Definitely recommend all of our listeners check that out. So our main host for today is the one and only Josh Adams. Josh is the co-founder of a consultancy that I'm actually not going to try to pronounce the name of because I feel like there's DBA. a it that I don't know. Uh, perfect. DBA. I think I was thrown by the... Uh, the domain name, which I think is it's, it's in triplicate. Nice. Yeah, that's cute. I like it. Uh, so Josh, you want to kick us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey into tech and the Elixir community. Yes, I do. Uh, at, by way of basic introduction. So right now I am a partner at, at DBA. Our website is dbadbadba.com. And uh, we're a product and software consultancy. Uh, so I do a lot of Elixir work. Uh, we do plenty of Python. So we work for FinTech clients. We use Python for parsing PDF files and turning images into data structures and all that stuff. Uh, we use Ruby and Flutter and TypeScript and a little bit of Elm, less Elm than I'd like. Uh, and we also just generally help people scale systems and, and plan projects and products. And if anyone would like to talk to me about a project, you can reach me at josh at dbadbadba.com. Anyway, so we started this company in uh, 2020, which is not the best time to start a company, if I'm going to be honest with you. We grew it anyway to about eight people and some contractors, so I feel pretty good about that. And mostly I do like architectural stuff um, and high level like meta management of the various projects in flight and also building the software that we use to run our business. And then at a lower level, people ping me during the day with hard problems so that I can help them and get them unstuck. And that's most of what my day ends up looking like. Actually, that's not true. Mostly it's meetings, but in the time between meetings, that's what my day looks like. Prior to this, I ran Daily Drip and Elixir Sips, so I produced screencasts for software developers about Elixir and Elm and Flutter and other things. And then prior to that, I ran another consultancy where we did a lot of Ruby and Rails stuff. I brought the Ruby programming language to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, and while I was running Isotope 11, we built the first version of Shift. Uh, we built large projects for the FBI and the Patent Office and a lot of other fun stuff. I also organized the Birmingham Elixir Meetup which people are saying is like the Austin city limits of Elixir meetups. Anyway, and aside from all the work and technical stuff, I'm a Christian guy that lives with my wife and three kids on some land with a log cabin in Alabama. And I live 30 minutes away from the nearest small city. And I have dogs and quail and cats and chickens and ducks and rabbits. Uh, and I usually work like 12 hour days, but I really would like to not do that anymore. So I have to ask you about the rabbits. My daughter actually also grows rabbits. <laughs> She's actually studying to be a vet and she's growing rabbits and um, they have a pretty big operation in their backyard. Yeah, so we had some rabbits. Right now we have a couple of pet rabbits for my kids. We had rabbits. We were, uh, we were growing outside and you know, I'm a, I like farmy things. Anyway, it turns out one of our dogs figured out how to open the rabbit cage. And so um, they were food, but they weren't food for me. We uh, we did the meat rabbits thing for a while too. It's a lot of it's a lot of work. Yeah, that's kind of the goal. I have another question for you, Josh. Um, one of the things that I've always respected about you is that you have this excellent radar for technologies that that are important. How do you find important technologies, and how do you weed uh, weed through all of the all of kind of the noise that that comes through the signal to to get to them? Uh, honestly, I play, I write a lot of 
programming. I write programs in a lot of different languages and uh, consequently I find lots of things about every language that just kind of bothers me a little bit. And so when I'm playing with other languages and they are much nicer, for instance, Elm's error messages are better than any other language. Um, so when you see it, it's not real hard to know, okay, well, this is like actually at least an order of magnitude better than anything else because I've seen all the other error messages and none of them told me, hey, here's how to fix it. I wrote a wiki page for you. Go look at this wiki page, the way that Elm's errors will. Uh, so that's, that's nice. Um, also like, so Flutter, I played with Flutter for about 10 hours one weekend to build like a prototype. And I had built production React Native apps a bunch and 10 hours into doing Flutter, I, I called my partner and I said, hey, um, so I'm pretty sure I'm faster at building mobile apps with Flutter than I am in React Native. So like, I don't know, that's kind of a good hint. Elixir I found because of a very explicit need. That helped me that, I think that's the same story, right? Like I, I needed something and I played with Elixir and I saw, oh, right, actually Erlang. Originally I played with Erlang and I saw, oh, right, this will solve the problem that I had before. And uh, I think it's neat. So I came to Elixir by way of Erlang and I came to Erlang by way of the actor model. And while I was running the Ruby-based consultancy, uh, we built a lot of really cool stuff, but one of those things was a Bitcoin meta exchange. And we implemented it using Celluloid, which is an actor model framework for Ruby. And we ran it atop JRuby. And it was kind of okay. Like it, it worked really, really well um, up to about two nodes. I, di I didn't know up to about two nodes initially. Uh, so it worked out really, really nicely. And then we finally load past it past 5,000 current users because this was a very early stage uh, startup and it was one of their products. And when I got past 5,000 users, I really couldn't, I couldn't push the JRuby celluloid system to do anything like what I wanted past that. Um, and it was really horrible. And that kind of led me to believe, okay, I think now probably actor modeling stuff in Ruby is probably a lot better given the, the focus. Uh, but at the time it was a horrible experience and uh, the things that were awesome. So like there were things that were awesome about it. Modeling stuff as actors made us, let us build this really cool real-time system. It did all this really cool stuff. It was easy to think about and reason about the way that data flew, uh, flowed through the system. And that was important, but, but also there's the global interpreter lock and there's other libraries that you use that are not like threading friendly. And there's a whole bunch of gotchas in sort of the Ruby language. So anyway, uh, that bad decision I didn't have to pay for because the client being a startup pivoted the product uh, at around 3000 concurrent users. So I was sitting here like at a dashboard and I was watching this thing go up and I knew like somewhere around five stuff's gonna get real bad for me at night. But, uh, but then they decided to build a different product entirely. So that was great. Anyway, but the thing that I did learn about that is that I really like modeling systems uh, sort of as actors. Uh, but I figured if I was gonna go through like all this trouble and cause myself actual heartburn, uh, trying to get that in Ruby, maybe I should just use the language that people who build actor-based systems use. And so that led me to Erlang. I'm kind of curious how you came across the actor model. Cause you said you went uh, from Erlang to Elixir, actor model to, to Erlang, like what, what was your initial problem or was it that, that Bitcoin meta exchange that kind of led you to the actor model it was, and then you were just trying to find a good fit for that somewhere? It was real time stuff, honestly, like doing the sorts of things that I, the, the sort of things that uh, live view and channels are really, really good for in Phoenix were the sorts of things I wanted to do is how I wanted to be able to structure programs. And I kind of came to that realization when we started doing our first real-time e stuff, you know, you're, it's not a not a straightforward web request response cycle. I think it just it just leans towards the actor model eventually, if you if you kind of go down that rabbit hole, unless you don't want to do a lot of stuff. So while I was interested in Erlang uh, because of that, I started to attend Nash FP, which is the Nashville Tennessee Functional Programming Group, and uh, Brian Hunter, who is really, really good. I like Brian a lot. If you have never talked to Brian, if you see him, you should talk to him because he's nice and he will talk to you and he's smart. Anyway, he was he was just kicking off uh, Erlang School, which was a series where he um, he just kind of walked people through the basics of Erlang to get more people writing Erlang because he wanted more people writing Erlang. And one of my best friends, Robbie Clements, also lived in Nashville at the time. And so like, I would go up there and visit Robbie for a couple of days and we'd go to Nash FB. So it was, you know, the fact that I was going to visit my buddy was enough to make me really continue doing it. And after I'd done Erlang for a bit, I, I did build a production, very short-lived production project. Uh, that was, its production use case was to be a proof of concept uh, for the patent office that was built in Erlang that wrapped uh, just a high-performance web server uh, in front of some C code because some people wrote some C code and they thought, I wish I could run a lot of these in response to web requests. And I said, aha, 
So we have this Erlang thing. Um, and it was, you know, a day to put together a web server that, that did a good job of routing a bunch of requests to a bunch of things running that C code. Anyway, so having that like early win, even though it wasn't for a big scale thing, uh, helped me stay interested in Erlang. And then I saw a talk that Jose gave at Ordev, I don't know how to pronounce that conference, um, where he was talking about Elixir. And I don't know what year this was, but it was prior to Elixir 0.10. And in that code, he shipped the bytecode for a module. So he defined a module, and then he shipped the bytecode to another node from the REPL. And then on the other node, he evaluated the module. And of course, it did stuff because it knew about the module. Um, but that was, uh, that was very cool to me. Like it was explicitly a thing that I had uh, wanted to wanted to build in the past, but not having immutability and whatnot means that you're kind of implicitly saying, well, you should also ship a closure uh, when you're doing that. And that doesn't work out so well. So like in Ruby, you don't, you don't do that thing, right? You don't ship that sort of bytecode. I thought that was really cool. And it also let me see what tooling support looked like in Elixir. Um, and this was super early days Elixir, but I was doing Erlang stuff. I couldn't help but notice that Elixir already had way better tooling than Erlang, even though it was just this tiny little baby language. Like in Erlang, where I was doing production stuff and I was talking to people who were doing production stuff, you mostly just kind of fiddled with rebar a little bit. You used an ungodly number of Emacs macros so that you didn't have to write the code. And then you just kind of discovered packages. So if you wanted software in Erlang back then, there was a GitHub repo where Tristan Slaughter had, had like put a bunch of Erlang files. You could go get a, a version of a library in the past from there and drop it into your source code. But there was nothing like hex um, and there was nothing like, like true package management built in. And so that was, that was huge. And I spent a weekend playing with Elixir after I saw that video and uh, that got me hooked. And I was hooked for superficial reasons initially. Uh, like I liked the syntax. I liked not having to remember when to put a period, uh, even though I'd worked with Erlang for forever. Uh, just little things like, oh, I moved that line of code and now it's syntactically invalid just bothersome. Um, and also like, I really like the macro system, but I, I use it very little. Uh, but when I have to use it, not having it would be devastating. More than anything else, I thought the community was very, very welcoming. I really like talking to people in the Elixir community. And so I stuck around. I say Elixir, come for the syntax and virtual machine, stay for the people. That's so great. That's so great to hear. Um, I, I know I speak for a lot of people and I say that, uh, I offer a big thank you for Elixir SIPs. I know like early on, just finding out how to do stuff and what libraries sort of exist in Elixir. What sort of is the, I think when a, a, a language is pretty early on, trying to figure out what the quote unquote right way to do stuff is. And I think your videos led um, the way in doing that. Can you talk about, I guess, building that out? Like, what was that experience? Like building Elixir steps, getting it out there. Uh, and if you think anything- I will, give you, I will give you the whole thesis. The whole thesis was, I want to learn Elixir. I bet if I have to learn Elixir because people are giving me money to do it, I'll learn it real good. And there's there's the end of it. I mean, not really, because I also was really, uh, I love Gary Bernhardt's videos. I, I found them, Destroy All Software uh, was huge. I was a huge fan of Ruby Tapas. So like I generally was interested in that sort of thing and I had benefited a lot from that sort of thing. So I thought, well, there's not that many people that are like super experienced in programming, you know, I'd put lots of large production systems uh, in place and they had sold for tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, ultimately the startups that, that started with them. Uh, and so like, I'm not, I'm not the most amazing ever, but like, I'm pretty confident saying, yeah, okay, I'm experienced. And so having an experienced person that's completely new to this language and honestly pretty new to the functional programming paradigm and being able to just figure it out alongside them seemed like the sort of thing that I wish I had had available. So I thought maybe I should do that. Very cool. I also had no idea uh, Jose had spoke at Dev, which is a Swedish conference. Were you there in person or I don't no, know? No, someone sent me a video of it two weeks after he gave the talk, maybe. Yeah, that would be fairly early. It looks like it was in 2012. All right, so 2012 is when I first probably uh, opened up uh, Elixir at all. So it was about, it was about two days after I saw that talk, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this because the timing was just perfect. Like it was right at that period where I really, really wanted the actor model and I really liked Ruby and I was very comfortable with it, but I knew that I couldn't get what I wanted there. So you said that you really, really wanted the actor model. And I think, um, you know, most of us on this call would, would agree, but what attracted you to the actor model? Why did you really feel like this is the way to model concurrency? Um, because it is a model. 
Like it is, it is what happens concurrently, right? Like there's a bunch of people. Oh, look, here's a process. It represents that person. That's the model. Like the model matches what's happening in the real world. And the fact that I can then decorate that, that process with the behavior that I want that person's interaction to have is like, you can build everything for that. Uh, everything in the real time space, at least. Like it, it just maps so very well to what you want to do. I tried doing the sorts of things that I wanted to build that did real time stuff in other languages and it was doable, but miserable. And that's what Joe Armstrong said that that real object orientation was, right? It's that this is real message passing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So that's another thing. Uh, I watch, I, I like Alan Kay. Like if you're going to pick a person that I think is the most influential on me actor model wise, it's probably Alan Kay. I don't know if you've watched any of his, he does like long, very deep videos somewhat infrequently. Um, and right now he's doing really, really cool stuff, or at least has been at the Viewpoints Research Institute. But uh, prior to that, he just talked about, hey, look, I've got like the small talk thing and here are some kids. They made fish that interact with, with each other in a 3D aquarium. Look how cool it is. And so, and they did it by doing message passing and small talk. And so, you know, watching that stuff and appreciating, yeah, I like education. I like, I want people to be able to access computers and do stuff with them. And so seeing this guy that, that could show young children how to build virtual fish, that's kind of, again, orders of magnitude better than most people can do in terms of teaching young children programs. So there's something inherently there. I don't have to know actually what the words are around it to know that like, I've seen other people try to teach young children to program and they didn't produce a virtual fish living in a 3D aquarium. You also mentioned that the tooling is what sort of sold you on Elixir earlier. It's one of the few things, but the tooling has changed so much and evolved so much in the past, you know, however many, what, five years beyond. So what are your thoughts on where the tooling is at now compared to where it was, where it needs to go. Releases were the big thing that we're missing and we got them a while back. I don't have a whole lot of complaints. The fact that mixed test was a built-in thing from the beginning was huge for me because again, it just wasn't, wasn't quite as integrated uh, in, in Erlang, but like the docs, right? So hex docs are outstanding. They're phenomenal. The fact that you have, you can do doc tests, right? And I can read someone's documentation and go, oh, look, like all the stuff they say works, works. You know, that's, we forget, I think, because we're, we're Elixir people and people that write our documentation have doc tests. But I use other languages a lot. And very frequently, I'll read the docs and they'll say, just do this, and it works this way. And I'll do that. It doesn't work that way. And I can find why it doesn't work that way. And I can go figure it out. And it's documented somewhere in code or something differently. But the documentation that I read said it does the thing and it doesn't do the thing. And I don't ever experience that in Elixir. And I forget that in other ecosystems, it's not unusual. It's pretty interesting that I think that a lot of that comes from a value system of, of the people who are actually building Elixir, right? Like especially Jose, he signaled early that documentation was important to him, that discoverability was important to him. All these, all these different factors that, that went into the tool chain came from partially being in, in a community, the Ruby community, where the tooling was pretty good, and partially came from the recognition that to bootstrap a language, you need tools to use, discover, understand the language. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the fact that uh, like these, these things were considered as first-class citizens from the get-go, uh, I think really really helps uh, it, like we're getting that interest now on those initial developer experience uh, investments in the Elixir ecosystem. Like it's, it's really hard to go do that after the fact and, and retroactively produce hex docs for everything. But if it's there from the get-go, while it's a big effort and, you know, we appreciate everyone putting their work in and, and, and getting that done, we're all reaping the benefits now. And we have that great community tooling. I was going to say about that when I'm building software projects, if I build a UX um, framework first, it goes better, right? Uh, and I feel like that's what Jose did with making docs and tests and everything first class is like you're getting the usability framework correct. Once you have that done, you can expand upon it and it's good. But if you don't do it up front, uh, -uh you don't get to. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, you know, on that uh, point, so you say you you you, know, you mess around with a lot of languages. What have you seen in other ecosystems that you wish we had in Elixir? Um, well, so I like I like types. I like types a lot. I think Dialyzer is pretty good, but types are are also quite nice. Uh, I'm not unaware of the complexities of types and, and sessions. Uh, and so I understand why uh, we don't have 
Elm style types and Elixir uh, exactly. But and I'll talk about that later. But there's lots of lots of fun options in that language. So I, I do I do like that. Our error messages are getting better, but I think something like the Elm error messages catalog would I don't know I don't know that there is one I haven't seen it or Elixir. Uh, and that's just where anytime someone comes across an error message they find confusing from the compiler, they open an issue and it becomes part of this catalog Git repo. And then uh, Evan makes the error messages not awful in those cases. Like that's just, it's just kind of a workflow to make the, you know, turn things from this was confusing into, hey, I know exactly what to do next. Um, and so that's something that Elm spends a lot of time, a lot more time on than any other language still. And one of the worst error messages is supposedly going to get better. I hear bad org is is going to get improved, which uh, would be nice because sometimes you just get a bad argument, bad org, and uh, you have no idea really why it's bad. It's enough to know that it's bad. Yeah, why didn't you just use a good <laughs> org instead? That's correct. I think this is actually a... This is a great segue into today's topic, which I won't spoil too much for Josh to dive into, but I will say that our topic today is beam things that aren't Elixir. Josh, tell us a little bit about that. All right, so I have a standard thing that I do where I go to a conference and I give a talk about the language that is not that conference's language. So for instance, I talk about uh, Elixir or Erlang at Ruby conferences, uh, or I talk about Arduino at, at Ruby and Elixir conferences, or I talk about Java at an Elixir conference one time. Or, um, or I talk about Elm at Elixir conference. I like I, it's kind of my it's my shtick, and so uh, beam things that aren't Elixir seem along the same lines. Um, so like Elixir is just one thing on the beam virtual machine, but like it's a machine. We it, we should know about the machine. Um, so there are a lot of different things that fit into the machine that you can use with it, and some of them are really cool, and a lot of them are not discussed frequently. So I wanted to at least go over some of those a bit, so everybody knows what's out there, and also just because this is one of the more fun parts of the Erlang virtual machine for me. So I've got a link to a list of various Beam languages. Uh, it's really nice and maintained, and it also collects a bunch of talks regarding uh, building a language on the Beam. I think that's 30 languages in that repo, and I've kind of extracted some of them, and I'd like to talk about them very rapid fire, and we'll see how many we get through. From a pure numerical standpoint, given the topic, uh, this also means that the topic is unavoidably a little bit weighted towards neat things that Robert Verding wrote. Sorry, that's, that's what you're going to get if you do one of these. Uh, the first neat thing that Robert Birding wrote is Erlang. So there's lots of really cool stuff that's useful out of Erlang. We've talked about it a bunch, uh, things that are outside of the beaten path. I wanted to mention things from OTB and standard lib that we think are like really cool, but maybe people don't use that much. And so I'm going to go back to my standby, the SSH application, because uh, there's really neat stuff you can do with it. And I was reading through the Erlang man pages for it, and uh, I was reminded of a thing I didn't remember existed in SSH, which was subsystems. Uh, and the fact that reading the Erlang documentation teaches me uh, a fundamental uh, component of the SSH protocol makes me really happy. So are there other Erlang modules that y'all find yourselves using or admiring that you think people should should think about? Yeah, one I've definitely run into trying to make a cluster coordinate a little bit was just the global module, uh, which is, that's fairly core to to Erlang distribution, I believe, uh, but it's it's definitely a useful tool if you have a have a cluster and need to coordinate it. I've also looked very very longingly at that SSH application because I I have this weird idea that I want to uh, do some SSH specific stuff where where you just basically SSH straight into an Elixir application and. Like the potential there is is mind-boggling. I can only imagine what would have happened if this was available for building GitHub originally, because Git well, generally goes over SSH. Well, so to that end, I think that you would be maybe surprised. I'm not sure, but uh, I know that Erlang was used very heavily uh, early days GitHub for coordination, uh, and I only know that because uh, that's where I get libraries that, that came from Tom back in the day. I haven't often uh, worked like directly with Erlang, but there was one use case that we had uh, actually at the Flatiron School early on in a project that we were doing. I, I can't remember why we needed to do this, but we had the need to encrypt SSH keys. Um, looking back, I'm sort of really thinking, why, why did we feel we needed to do that? But we did feel we needed to do it. And dropping down into uh, Erlang's crypto module was 
it was my first experience even looking really at Erlang code or reading through any of it. And I found it uh, really pleasantly surprising. I found it easy to kind of read and grok, super easy to incorporate and use within our Elixir application. And I just learned a ton uh, from working with it. I had a pretty interesting experience also. Um, so we, so Frank Hunlist and I were working together on a NERFS project called a Sensor Hub. And Alex is going to join us with that, maybe in writing about that project. But one of the things that we had to do was actually make enable communications from Raspberry Pi to something else. And we were actually able to get the PubSub piece working with Phoenix PubSub, which is actually a really tiny dependency because it's built on top of Erlang's process groups. So we built on PG2. And um, of course, PG is the adapter that's going to follow that up. But yeah, probably like eight lines of code, 10 lines of code to make distributed PubSub work. It was fantastic. This is where the line Erlang had it 25 years ago comes from. Yeah, PG2 is a recurring thing for me as well. It's just for PubSub and for other things. It's just an incredibly useful tool. One weird one that I was surprised to find in Erlang when I found it was EGD, which is like 2D image rendering. And so you can, uh, yeah, <laughs> I believe it can handle writing some text as well. I'm not, yeah, I haven't dug into it fully, but it, yeah, there, there are many odd little corners of Erlang and also WX, which, uh, like uh, WX widgets, you actually have cross-platform UI framework support in Erlang and thus in Elixir, which is which is slightly mind-boggling. Yeah, I've always been uh, I've always been reaching for the uh, the data structures libraries like uh, Q and Graph. Like anytime I have something that I need to uh, make sure I get the correct data structure in place, it seems like I could always reach for those built-in. Uh, OTP data structures and uh, yeah, it really helps make things uh, speedy and responsive and it just fits. Yeah, they've been exercised, doing neat stuff. All right, so I'm gonna move us on from Erlang because we got a bunch of, bunch of ground to cover. So uh, the next thing I wanna talk about is the LASP. So LASP is a programming model for synchronization free computation that aims to provide services for the development of planetary scale applications. Uh, so it started by Christopher Michael John, and it's used as an underlying component of Erlang's, which is also neat, which is like Microsoft Orleans for Erlang, uh, which is which is very cool. It's just like Erlang, but you have like these grains, and the grain represents a process, and it's either running or not, but you kind of don't have to think about it, and the system will run it and distribute it and keep it close to you if it can when you try to talk to it, and uh, it's a very cool model uh, if you haven't seen Orleans or Erlang's. Really neat, but I don't know much about it except for I watch it. Um, and if you don't know Christopher Michael John, he's like Basho OG, and he gave the best talk on CRDTs I ever attended at Erlang Factory in San Francisco in 2014. So um, I like I like Christopher Michael John, and so I wanted to wanted to talk about Last because it's neat. Last has always been on a list of things to play with and write a blog post about, but I just I just haven't had the chance to to sit down and let, actually put a project together. Let's you and me write a blog post together and play with Last because I also want to have a compelling reason to play with it. I, I like that idea, and we can motivate each other. Let's let's get it on the Google Calendar. But can you Done. give uh, can you give maybe the listeners like a like an elevator pitch? What utilities does LASP provide for you in order to build these planetary scale applications? So if if you wanted, it's a collection of libraries. So there's a bunch of stuff that sort of comes along with it, but uh, it provides an eventually consistent process registry, um, its own like programming system. Uh, it provides a thing called Partisan, which is a replacement for distributed Erlang that lets you configure the topologies. Uh, so if you're running an application that has a lot of mobile app, like mobile cell phone nodes, you know, that's not, that doesn't really fit into the typical Erlang distributed topology. But there are systems that you'd really like to build in an Erlang style that involve that kind of layout. And so Partisan and LASP kind of exist to do that. So the planetary scale is like, okay, well, we don't want we don't want 500 nodes. We can scale an Erlang system linearly to 500 nodes and get like linear performance increase for the most part. And then it kind of drops off, right? That's the current state of, of Erlang clustering as I understand it. And we may be somewhere around, it's not far off from 500. The goal of the LASP is, you know, you ought to be able to have millions of nodes and they should all be able to interoperate in the system that with, with their own like um, 
where you have network partitions and stuff, you would you would have like little little seams to put extra extra stuff to handle that sort of thing in your broader topology. So that's neat. And then there's a thing called Plumtree, which is uh, an over optimizing overlay network that lets you kind of handle the fact that your the shape of your cluster changes when you allow a bunch of people to be in it. And then um, they have this reliable causal broadcast thing. And then they have a bunch of CRDT types, so da data types built on top of CRDTs so that you can build eventually consistent models. Um, and then they have this really cool thing. I've definitely not played with this. They have a thing called Sprinter that's a service discovery layer if you're running for operating LASP on top of uh, DCOS or Kubernetes. Um, so I'm presently super interested in DCOS uh, on its own. And the fact that I could just have a LASP system that spans across all these machines that I'm managing with DCOS, and each of those nodes could like expose the services that it provides. It's like, that's kind of the holy grail of what I was originally looking to build when I was uh, when I was first looking at the actor model. It's like, that's the sort of thing I want. So that's really cool, but I haven't, I haven't played with it in depth. But those are the sorts of things that you get. Yeah, I definitely see a, uh, a joint blog post in our future here, Josh. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, so it sounds like LASP has like a bit of overlap with, um, so obviously the built-in Erlang stuff, but it does it uh, slightly differently. Whereas you know, Erlang is uh, one node connects to every other node. I'm pretty sure LASP is uh, like a gossip protocol. So uh, every node doesn't connect to every other node, but every node can get to every other node through other nodes, right? Yeah, and yeah, in, in essence, and I'm going to have to actually play with it to give a more detailed answer than, yep, sounds right. Yeah, sounds right. And then uh, that also aligns with like um, uh, Paul Schoenfelder's libraries, uh, like Swarm and, and libcluster, right? So it seems like there's we have a couple things in the ecosystem to kind of attack I, these problems. I think of them as completely different. So I think Swarm and libcluster are ways to handle uh, the Erlang nodes uh, topologies that you would normally have in a scaled Erlang application. So like, I still think that your typical, and I, I doubt there are many people doing anything with Swarm that go beyond 500 nodes. Um, I could be super wrong, and if I'm wrong, I want to hear about it because I want to hear what someone's doing in that situation. But I'm pretty sure that they're just a way of really managing existing Erlang distribution, whereas LASP provides a different distribution layer entirely uh, in Partisan and also provides all these. So like it's got an eventually consistent uh, key value store. So you can just you know, publish stuff into this key value store that everybody knows about eventually. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, I think we'll, I think we'll have to write that blog post and, uh, and learn some more. All right. I'm going to continue in my rapid fire uh, fashion. So lisps. So we have two lisps. There may be more, but there are two major lisps. There's Clojural, which is a lisp for the Erlang VM. And you should use it if you really want Clojure, but you want to run Clojure on Erlang. And then there's LFE, uh, which is also a lisp for the Erlang VM. But this is if you want like if you want lisp in your Erlang system, as opposed to you want to run Clojure on Erlang. And I don't know how to differentiate it more than that, aside from if you read what people say about them, that's vaguely what people say. Um, I'm not really a Lisper. I've played with Lisp plenty. Um, I think everyone should. It's like the the purest form of, of programming in some ways. Um, but uh, since I'm not really a Lisper, I haven't used either of these things in anger. But when I played with uh, LFE, I had a really fun weekend. And uh, in looking through, just kind of preparing, uh, discussing this, uh, I found the LFE machine manual, which is the modern LFE manual that's in progress. Um, it's really quite cool. I've got a link to it. And there's a talk uh, that'll be in the show notes about uh, real Lisp in the Erlang ecosystem by Robert Birding. And it's just in Stockholm in 2016, where Robert talked in depth about sort of what, what LFE gives you. And then separately, there's this thing in Lisp called flavors. It was the first object-oriented, uh, well, it was an object-oriented extension for Lisp. It was the first language that had mixins. Um, so... There's this paper from 1982, and this is what I this is really what I like about doing stuff in Erlang is if I go fiddle with something intriguing enough in Erlang, I eventually read a paper from 1982, and that just makes me happy. And so uh, I also linked to flavors as described in the Lisp machine manual. But this is the thing where Robert Birding built the object-oriented version of Lisp inside of LFE that you have access to in in Erlang, and it's just it's neat. It's like small talk in Lisp on the Bean. It's pretty cool. I think that that Robert lights up in a way when he's talking about lisps that he doesn't necessarily like light up when he's talking about Erlang, right? Very much like Joe and his affair with Prolog. Yeah, Robert, I, I think he does that about all of his little, his, I say his little languages, they're all impressive and, and uh, consequential, but uh, he has so many, it's hard to, 
anyway, but yeah, so like his, when he talks about Lou Earl, uh, I also get that same lighting up. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. One of the things that I love to watch about Lisp is that it has such a profound impact on other languages. Like with with Jose, he was able to incorporate the idea of, of macros, right? So the nice thing about macros in Elixir is that, that they basically have this, um, this system of actually representing data as code, but that syntax tree has a, a there's, there's a degree of separation that you don't see in Lisp, but essentially the ideas about macros and Elixir are very similar to the ideas about macros and in Clojure and um, in other Lisps as well. Well, and that's, that's because they are sort of the platonic ideal of macros uh, in the same way that everything about Lisp is the platonic ideal of that thing. And yet we only hear about the parentheses. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to move on to Erlog, which is yet another Robert Birding thing. Uh, Erlog is a prolog interpreter that's in and for Erlang. So it's implemented in Erlang. It integrates with Erlang. Uh, it is a subset of prolog and includes a, a shell, uh, like a REPL. And if you wanted to put some prolog or logic programming stuff into a larger Erlang system or Elixir system or whatever, then uh, it's the thing to use. Um, and it's not the thing to use if you just want a prolog, because then you should just use a prolog. Um, Anyway, but I built a rules engine in Elixir once. And if you're building a rules engine, a prologue is a really nice thing to use. But this was the first time I had built a rules engine and I didn't really fully appreciate that what it, I mean, it worked out just fine, actually. Uh, it's in production, it's great. But uh, I did end up having to re-implement it in Ruby for reasons that I do not love to go into because they are bad, but were not unsound decisions for the executives making them. But at any rate, I should have spent more time when I was building the rules engine and identified how to use Erlog uh, because then I really could have uh, could have not left the Elixir version of it. I'm pretty sure I could have won that battle if I were like, no, but we're using Prolog and it's a rule system. You're dumb. Anyway, so if you wanted a Prolog, I can't imagine a Prolog that Robert Verding wrote in his language that is also a descendant of Prolog but understands distribution uh, is a bad place to look for your Prolog. Anyway, and then I also have a link in the show notes for Erlog Server, which is something Zach Kesson wrote a while ago that lets you make a gen server from a Prolog file, which just on its own, that's a fun sentence. Yeah, probably a, a, a good measure of the effectiveness of a language is um, what does prologue feel like in that language, right? And if it feels like kind of a dumbed down prologue, maybe you're not working with the right abstractions. Um, but, you know, if you're in something like Clojure and, and you see like the, the mini Cameron stuff that, that works there, it takes on a whole new dimension. And the same thing happens with, um, with, with prologue and Erlang. And if someone doesn't know what Prolog is, I should probably mention it. So like, if you want to build uh, an inference engine or something, if you have uh, if A then B, if you have a whole lot of those and they kind of can become hairy, but you just want to dump a bunch of stuff in and, and see what kind of categorically what falls out of that stuff being true, uh, that's, that's kind of where Prolog gets you. So you can just dump in facts and kind of fact patterns and, and find out other facts. That's kind of what it's for. Yeah, and Croxio has a module in case you're interested in checking it out. The the idea is that you can build things like maze solvers or constraint logic problems, and these types of things are, are great for languages like Prolog. I literally just put figure out why and when I would need a Prolog on my to-do list, so I guess I'll have to visit Groxio. I actually have a need for a Prolog right now. We're building in the software for running our business. We uh, we want a bunch of declarative rules around what are kind of alerting conditions for different uh, different parts of the hierarchy of resources that we care about. And uh, just being able to write those as as kind of Prolog facts is uh, intriguing to me. So I expect that I'll do that, but we'll see where it goes. I wish I can go back in time and smack myself upside the head when I didn't appreciate Prolog back in, uh, in uh, university. It's kind of inherently a dry thing to talk about unless you have a real need for it. I was like, okay, so here's consequence. Do you know consequence? We're going to do that forever. So I'm going to skip past Erlog. We talked about it. It's great. Play with it. And talk about Gleam. Uh, so Gleam is an Erlang language whose compiler is built in Rust. And it's more like a C or an, an ECMAScript or a JavaScript, but it's still ML inspired. And it compiles to regular Erlang, not core Erlang. Um, so that's, that's kind of neat. And it's generally a neat language, and it's on my list of things to play with, but I have not really. But I'm in the beta test for an app called SendMemo, uh, and one of their team members messaged me and told me, first off, that they listen to our podcasts, uh, which is really fun. 
uh, and then secondly, uh, told me about Glance, which is an open source component that they built in Gleam that they use to produce preview cards of URLs. So if you post a link in their email client, it's like an email messaging client. It's really cool. Uh, sendmemo.app. But uh, if you post a link in there, it'll unfurl, right? Your, your Slack style unfurling of a YouTube video or whatever, but inside of an email. Um, anyway, so that's the library that they use for that. And I actually posted a link to one of the more fun modules in that, in that repo because I had to go analyze it if somebody was going to send me some code and talk about Gleam. Very cool. I haven't actually heard anything about Gleam in production. And uh, it's still early days for the language. And I'm sure there are people trying things. But it's, it's cool to see that, yeah, that it's moving forward. It, it yeah. seems like a real nice language from what I've heard, but I haven't dug into it at all yet. So now, though, you have heard of someone using Gleam in production. Yeah, yeah, now I have. <laughs> So Josh, do you know if Gleam had to take some steps backwards in terms of abstractions? Like, um, are things like the, the macros still there and, and the, um, the protocols and um, all those pieces? I don't remember exactly, because I know they changed, like now they are a Rust compiler and they were previously an Erlang-based compiler, I'm pretty sure. Um, I would assume there were some sort of tweaks that happened there, but Looking at the feature list, they, they seem to have most of the things I care about. So like um, Erlang style stuff, fault tolerance, algebraic data types. So like on its surface, if you said, okay, so here's the deal. You have like Erlang, but you also have ADTs. I would say like, okay, well, I probably want to play with that. So I don't know, it seems intriguing. No null, no null, that's good. That's what we want out of a language. And you can use it also very trivially. You can write things that are like interop for Elixir. So you could write, if you were to reach out to to Rustler or something, you can write Gleam. I don't know if you want to do that for that purpose. There's probably other reasons you would want to use Gleam. But uh, anyway, it's it's got very easy interop, which is what you would expect. From what I've heard, Gleam, one sort of restriction with Gleam and Elixir uh, is that it doesn't have macros or it doesn't have the same type of macros. And as such, it has a problem like interacting with Ecto, for example, which which could be a significant limitation or it could be a non-issue depending on what you're trying to do with it. But since it's working in Erlang rather than um, like on top of Elixir or whatever, it has some limitations where Elixir uh, doesn't translate straight across to Erlang uh, or like, I guess it's part of the compilation process where where you lose some of, some of the stuff and I think Ecto is one of the things that doesn't actually work. I, I heard a podcast episode with, I think his name is Louis, Louis. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where you spoke about it. Uh, I'll see if I can find a link for that. Cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move past it because I, I think that we can get through all these languages. I'm gonna I'm gonna try real hard. All right. So next we have our ML category languages. So these are Caramel and Hamler and Purell and more stuff. Uh, and I've got, I'll have links to all these in the show notes, but um, Caramel is a language that's pretty, pretty new. Um, and it is essentially an ML that is in, you know, it's Elixir and Erlang friendly. And that's, that's like exactly the sort of tagline that you need to get me interested. So I'll be playing further with uh, Caramel and Hamler, at least, um, and perhaps Pure Earl, which is a pure script Erlang backend. Uh, and then I've played with Alchemy, but I haven't used it. It's like Elm. It uses the Elm compiler to build Elixir stuff, uh, which is really cool. So you can be, building gen servers with the Elm model is super reasonable. Like it's what you do essentially, uh, which I think should intrigue Bruce. Um, and so, uh, so like Alchemy is like really nice uh, in theory, but I, I haven't, like I've played with it, but it's never made it into any actual project. Uh, then there's Fika, which is a language that's written in Elixir, which on its own is cool, right? So this is the language itself is written in Elixir. That's neat. That's F-I-K-A. Um, and if for no other reason than because that's the first time I've, I've heard that about a language that came up, uh, I, I check it out. Uh, and then there's, there's also Alpaca, which is kind of similar, I, I think, in, in style, but it hasn't really been updated. That may be because it's done. That may be because it's just not being pursued further. I'm not sure. Yeah, I have a note on Fika. That's, I'm pretty sure that's a Swedish project because that's, that's a Swedish word for like having a coffee and some sweets uh, sitting down, hanging out. Yeah, it's also pretty a chain sure. of Swedish coffee shops in Brooklyn that are actually pretty good. So <laughs> I, I actually did know that word. 
that, that that's the only uh, only knowledge I have about that project. But it it's the word. That's the first time I heard the word on account of there being no Swedish coffee shops in my town of three hundred people. Not surprising, but very unfortunate for you. An opportunity in the market, you know, to really take over that Swedish coffee. Honestly, I didn't know Swedish coffee shop was a thing. <laughs> Aside from in Sweden, where we have coffee shops, of course. Yes. Yeah. I think I think it's I think it's reasonable. <laughs> okay. So I have a tendency to stick around talking about ML languages too much, so I'm just going to skip past what we. Yeah. You know, so there's a list of them. That's a survey. Go play with them. There's too many to talk about. Moving on to Cuneiform. So this Cuneiform language is a language for large scale, large scale data analysis. Um, so it leverages the beam to enable highly parallel data flow programs in a variety of languages. So it uses distributed Erlang. You can set up a large cluster. Uh, it provides a POSIX conforming distributed file system. And then you can write these little functions that use any of a variety of languages. You describe a type, uh, you basically type spec the function. And then you can say, here's the type of it. It takes a person that's a string and outputs a string. Here's the implementation of it in bash. And that's kind of what a cuneiform program looks like. And then you stitch these things together in a distributed cluster and it parallelizes them. And so it's, it exists for doing massively parallelizable data flow in a variety of languages. So it's really cool. I think more people should know about it. I kind of only vaguely know about it, but it's, it's very, it looks really, really cool. That looks really awesome. I think I probably could have used it at my previous company where we were doing uh, uh, data processing for medical records. And we effectively built like a workflow engine, but it sounds like, this is already done and it is a workflow engine. So I probably, I probably should have just done a little bit more research and came across that. Yeah, it's kind of the way of workflow engines for what it's worth. So that's neat. I don't have a use for it right now, except for I probably have a bunch of uses for it that I'm not using it for. So it's on my list of things to play with. Uh, moving on to our next verting language though, we have Luerl. So this is an implementation of Lua 5.3 written in Erlang. And uh, Robert has done really cool stuff with he has a, I couldn't find it. There's a demo video of him doing um, spaceships and each of them is running a little Lua program. And he has in his REPL, he can like hot upgrade a spaceship to a different version of its module. They attack each other and they're all just independent running processes, but they're all just described as a small Lua program. And it's just, it's, it's really neat. So if you're doing like game stuff or you want to provide like in the rules engine, if you want to provide a way to write like just small little scripts that'll do stuff that your users can use and that you can sandbox relatively reasonably um, pretty well. I mean, Lua is uh, explicitly an embedded embedding language. Then Luerl is probably the thing, the thing to use. Yeah, that was a great talk. And and I, I love the idea of the the beam and an embedded style language like Lua. This It's it's really cool for scripting. Yeah, and I think that's something that's good to be aware of, that you shouldn't allow your users to write Elixir or Erlang into your application because like, okay, hot code upgrades. <laughs> they could just upgrade whatever they wanted. Uh, it's very, very hard to lock down uh, Elixir and Erlang as far as I'm, I've am i heard. Uh, and Luerl seems like one of the best options that I've heard of for, for allowing scripting into your application. All right, so Lua is cool, but have you heard about this language called PHP? So there's a thing called ePHP, which is a PHP interpreter written in pure Erlang. And then there is, as far as I can tell, a company called bragful.com. I couldn't really find out very much about them, but they offer a resilient and scalable PHP that, that uses ePHP. I don't have any idea. I came across it and thought it was really cool. Uh, I do have a client that has a large PHP program and uh, they have to scale it and they're in the middle of it. So it may be actually valuable. I don't truly know, but uh, it's neat and I didn't know it existed. And PHP and Erlang, come on. The site was a wild read. Uh, a little <laughs> bit weird in language and tone, uh, but um, and presentation. Yeah, I, I'm super curious screen, about like, this. Wait a second, we're gonna slide the screen over and show you the other one a little bit, okay? So, Josh, maybe next year you will be widely known as the person who who led to the resurgence of the PHP language. How fun would that don't be? Don't you do that? Don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby? So, no, please don't do that to me. All right, and then there's one final language, and then I'm done talking because I've I've surveyed basically all of them. Uh, it's called FNA, FNA.org, uh, EFENE.org. Uh, it's literally just an alternative syntax for Erlang. It doesn't try to be anything else. It just tries to be simple and consistent and to make programmer UX better. So like they took Erlang and focused on docu making documentation a little nicer. 
and providing a more consistent syntax that's a little easier to write. That's basically the whole thing. Mariano uh, Guerra talked about it at, at Erlang User Conference 2017, and it was neat. And I thought that people should know about it because he spent time on it, and it's really well thought out. Very cool. This is probably more languages than I've tried in my life. <laughs> yeah, just all... go play. Everybody play with these over the weekend. <laughs> Pick so one. This explains why you work twelve-hour days. You're such a addicted polyglot. Seven beams in seven weeks. Yeah, <laughs> that's the new. That's the new brand. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking on taking us on this whirlwind tour, Josh. I hope that our listeners will get inspired to play around with some of these languages and projects. I know that I definitely am. Before we wrap up, I will, of course, thank our wonderful sponsor, Graxio, which, as you guys know by this point, is career fuel for programmers. And I also want to shout out an upcoming event uh, that I hope we'll be able to publish this particular episode before the event. But folks might know that Codebeam Americas is coming up in March. And... Uh, Really, I kind of feel like it's a Beam Radio takeover of Codebeam because pretty much almost everyone on this call or many of us are involved in some way or another. So there's going to be a Q&A event where I am going to pick Bruce's brain a little bit about LiveView and vice versa. We have some excellent talks from our very own Alex Kutmos, who's going to be talking about observability and a project that he's been working to get out in recent weeks and months. And we're going to have a talk from our very own Steven on the Ruby actor model and what it's learned from the beam. So Steven, maybe you'll want to sync up with Josh, who it sounds like has a history of showing up at conferences to talk about other languages. And well, he's I the PHP guy now, so I can take the, yeah. is that what I'm getting from this? He's the PHP guy now. I can do the takeover of conferences. You get visual basic. <laughs> Perfect. That seems fair. And I think, uh, what's the last thing coming up at Codebeam that we're involved in a workshop, a workshop from Steven and me on Greenfield Elixir using RabbitMQ, how to pare down your monolith with some pretty fun event-driven techniques that let you bring in brand new Elixir apps to your ecosystem. So we hope that our listeners will check out some of that stuff. We hope to see everyone there and thank you all for listening. Catch you next time. So many things I've never heard of. I'm really excited <laughs> to dig into some of this stuff. <laughs>